So net zero, it means a lot of things to a lot of people, but for me, it's the move towards carbon neutrality. It's, to me, it just means being a responsible corporate citizen. And for us, net zero means moving towards energy efficiency and carbon reduction. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. We're excited to announce a new mini-series that will be airing on the podcast called Heard at NZF, recorded live at our recent Net Zero Forum. At our pop-up podcasting booth, we were able to conduct live interviews with energy customers at various stages of their decarbonization strategies in order to provide you, our listener, with insights and inspiration to help you on your smart energy journey. Today's episode highlights multiple energy customers in the industrial energy space. You'll be hearing from Scott Bargestock, Director of Manufacturing Productivity, Process Excellence, Quality and Global Energy at Mohawk Industries, and Victoria Lopez-Whitley's, Director of ESG at Arcosa Inc., and Charlie Marquez, Senior Manager of EHS and Facilities at Kirkill Inc. Let's kick things off from Scott Bargestock at Mohawk Industries. So Scott, welcome, and let's just start by a brief description of Mohawk Industries and your role. Well, one, first, let me thank you for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to come to one of the SED events. They're highly illustrative. It's great to meet people in the industry and make contacts that allow you to do a much better job once you get back home. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk. So Mohawk Industries is the world's largest flooring manufacturer. We have a very large global footprint which certainly dictates a lot of the discussion we're going to have today. We have a very large footprint in Europe, and obviously the EU is a leading the charge on some of the ESG reporting. We also have a large footprint in the Americas, in Brazil, Mexico, and of course here in the U.S. So our products encompass a number of different, hopefully, floorings that you use at your home, ceramic tile being one of them, us being the largest ceramic tile manufacturer in the world. We also have, of course, the other flooring types, laminate, resilient, and carpet, of course. So we cover all of those, and they all have very different portfolios relative to their energy consumption. Of course, with natural gas being a large component for the manufacturer of a number of those types, that our scope one is a key component within our portfolio of how we're going to attack and get to where we think we need to go as a company. Okay, thanks for that description. That was great. So we're going to start with a quick word association. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? As an engineer, I'm always puzzled by the fact that sustainability terms don't always mean what they say. So in this case, my understanding of net zero is, is we want to get to 50%. So Ah, it's a little math issue there. Okay. <laughs> All right. And that's so going from there, the company's sustainability goals, you know, what are you aiming for and how far are you on the journey? We have a number of businesses that have customers that sustainability is an extremely high priority. One of those markets is our commercial product division, particularly commercial carpet that's used in the hospitality, the industrial, and the government 
large facility applications. So they have already made it, basically signed the pledge. I believe it's a 2035 goal. So we as a company is, is, and that's a relatively modest percentage of our total revenue. And of course, that's specific to the U.S., not impacting our international portfolio. So we as a company are working towards what do we need to do from a standpoint of getting to taking that leverage that we have there in that particular market? How do we apply that elsewhere? And how do we, we look at balance that equation between what's doing the thing that the investors expect, doing the things that our customers expect? When we have some customers that that's a lower priority versus some customers that that's an extremely high priority. So we as a company are in that journey of trying to look at is, is what are all the key angles? What's the timeline need to look like? And then how do we get, once we define those, we can kind of define what the target is, what the goal is. And then, of course, we have to build the plan and we have to figure out a way to pay for that plan. Ah, uh, yes. The money always comes down to that. So you've got a lot of moving pieces here. On a global scale, what's the biggest challenge that you found? A lot of it has to do with internal metrics. There's a lot of interested parties internally. You know, we have our executive leadership is very focused right now on what are some of the IRA opportunities in the U.S. Certainly, we're in in a very conservative spending mode as a company right now with the world economy being the way it is. You know, we saw a huge influence last year with some of the energy pricing, particularly in our European manufacturing facilities. So there's a lot of things that have to be taken into consideration. We have a lot of internal priorities that aren't necessarily directly aligned with the goal. We just recently have moved our sustainability team from an internal within one of the business units to a corporate role. So as part of that, we've formally named a new CSO. So She's very familiar. She's been with the company a couple of years and is really knows a lot of the details. She's putting together a very strong team to help that. You know, they've been very good in helping me to better understand what are all the reporting requirements, what's the timelines look like. And then I've been helping to try to educate them on the energy side, on what the costs are, what our biggest opportunities might be, and what are some suggested steps that we take as we develop this strategy of where we want to go and when we want to get there. That's really interesting, the fact that they moved that position to a corporate level. So internal buy-in isn't one of your problems. No, it isn't. Now, we do have some hurdles internally on some certain kinds of, you know, we tend to have the attitude of that our cost of capital tends to be lower than other people. And even though that may be true, we need to look at other sources of capital outside of our own because you know, I think when we find that this journey is going to cost a lot more than we expected, we certainly don't want to, to devote our entire internal capital towards that need. So we need to be able to look at some external third-party funding. Where can we use energy as a service? So those are some of the things that when I come to an SED event, that's what I'm looking for is, is where are those other opportunities? You know, we've been having active discussions with one firm that we met here at SED a couple of years ago, and we're We've been trying to sell that concept, and it's in the ERCOT market. And it, fortunately, the weather in July and August and September of this year has been very helpful towards making our arguments. So, you know, so that we do have some internal hurdles to get over that, you know, and I think as a company, those are, you have to look at every option you have in today's world, particularly to get, once you define your goals and you lay out that path and you look at the cost, I think we're going to find that we need to use every tool in the tool belt. 
Yeah, that phrase has been coming up a lot in the last couple of days of this event, using all those tools. And something you mentioned earlier, you know, the fact that you're a global footprint. And I wrote down EU versus US. Are you just converting in your head all day long? You know, how's that working? <laughs> yeah, on the energy side, when I talk to the other people, I've learned to kind of do the conversions on the fly in my head because I like to talk to them in the units of measure that they're accustomed to. So that, that's been helpful. I've also found in discussions, I use Google Translate a whole lot to take my emails and translate it to the local language and send all my correspondence that way. That has actually come across really, the acceptance there has been quite favorable. So that's a good thing. But yeah, the EU is kind of dictating the roadmap on our sustainability journey with the new report, the CRS, CSRD reporting requirements. We have, of course, because of our large footprint there, I don't think we're going to divest all those assets, just not the report. So I believe it's 2028, we're going to have to become, we're going to have to report our entire international footprint to the EU, if I understand all the timelines and the requirements right. So the, what I find entertaining, I guess, because I don't have to do it. If we look at the ESG side, the amount of effort we have to do for the E, the emissions, and the G, the governance, is relatively modest. It's the social side that is taking up all the amount of time because the reporting requirements that the EU currently has on the books is just, I think it's way over the top, but not, not my call. So, Right. And now you're going to have U.S. ones coming. You know, we're just waiting for those to land, so you'll have a whole other issue. Correct. Yeah. Hopefully the SEC ones have a little more logic to them than the EU ones. But the early things that the SEC put out is, is some of those are going to be quite onerous as well. So I think, you know, the need to build a very robust sustainability group, unfortunately, is the reality of today's world with the current rules in place. So it's a real challenge for that group to try to bring all the moving pieces in to them. So I certainly appreciate the challenge they have there. So I'm trying to help best we can on the energy side. And speaking about that, I want to move to a talk about uh, energy efficiency projects, because that's something that Mohawk has really emphasized over the past years. So tell us about the programs, you know, yeah, give yeah, us some we, examples. Yeah, we tend to think of ourselves as being leading edge on some of the energy efficiency projects and technologies that we apply. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't, I, you know, maybe that's a little bravado, but some of the things that we've attacked, we've actually had to sell to international manufacturers on the technology and involve them in the solution. It was a little bit of a sell, but both of them have now come online. One of them has even just recently in a call I had with them about a month ago, they basically said is, is this presents no risk to your operations of your equipment. So that was really welcome within our company because these are substantial investments and critical paths within our production processes. So we've recently applied for some of the IRA money. We actually have energy efficiency projects that allowed us to take several sites that meet the 20% emissions reduction threshold that were in the 48C money. So we have made applications for those credits. You know, that if we'll find out for sure by March of 31st of next year, according to the IRS guidelines, whether we have got those grants or not. But we'll also then we'll have the challenge of the capital funding to go with those energy projects. So now internally, if we can get the additional ITC credits, the payback goes down to an exceptionally favorable. So we'll have to convince the board of directors and our CEO that that's a step we really want to go take. But, you know, it a 30% ITC is a really nice piece of bait to dangle in front of the... Yeah, I think they'll like it. <laughs> Let's hope they do. So we've kind of laid out is, is my suggestion to, the, to our sustainability group is, is let's tackle 
energy efficiency projects. Let's look at investments, both using internal capital and if necessary, external capital to try to get our footprint down as small as possible so that when we go ahead and, and, and initiate the actual journey, we're already as lean as we can be, you know, and then and the energy efficiency projects have the side benefit of, of not only do they reduce emissions, but they also provide a, a very favorable return on investment. We've kind of looked at it as, as where's our, if we're going to spend capital to reduce a metric ton of emissions, what makes the most sense? And energy efficiency projects typically come in at a couple hundred dollars a metric ton. A project like combined heat and power might be in the five, six hundred dollar a metric ton range. And then but if you get up to the common ones that you see a lot of, the PVs and the winds, those are at $2,000 or $2,500. And then if you really look at it compared to the regulatory, your local utility, they almost all have plans to go to a net zero generation at some point, pick a year that it varies highly. So the return from an investment per metric ton for any of those renewable projects becomes, it lessens over time. So the question is, is, is that really where you want to spend your money? Right. The math is going to look better down the road. Let's focus elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> that makes sense. All right. At Net Zero Forum, I want to turn to something that you're going to be doing uh, this afternoon. You'll be part of a panel basically debating the merits of carbon credits, which has been a big topic of conversation here. Where does Mohawk stand on that issue? We have a number of, in several of our markets, primarily ceramic tile and the commercial carpet, we have a large number of competitors who claim to have carbon neutral product, they're doing that all with carbon offsets. So is it truly a carbon neutral product? You know, you, that's certainly open for debate, but we've chosen to not take that carbon offset path yet. We're certainly looking at it. I've actually done calculations on, on what would be the cost if we were to offset an entire plant's worth of production and things like that. So we're actively discussing it. But what we have, if we look at some of the things going on in the industry. You know, the, the recent issue with the verification firm in Europe that has met, taken Shell Energy from their path on buying significant volume of carbon credits to now it looks like they're going to completely divest from that strategy entirely. So you see that. And then we see internally here in the U.S., I noticed an upstart company that was wants to go sell to any landowner in the Southeast that has 40 acres or more, we can do carbon credits and that. So that to me is, doesn't seem to make sense. That's existing, that's not new. So how can we take credit for that? A real short story that really made an impact to me was is I have a, a good acquaintance and they had a longtime lifetime friend that, that owned, their family owned a, a winery in Virginia. And he said he always used to enjoy going there and their wines were really good and everything. And, and now all of a sudden the wines become a secondary, more of a hobby than anything. So he asked about it and they said, well, most of our income now is coming from carbon credits. So again, it's that, okay, this winery has been in their family for generations and how can all of a sudden their product be, how can they be receiving this income from carbon credits? Again, it, it seems like a very stretchy argument, very thin so that's, that was kind of the, where I started down the carbon offset journey. Is, is this really where we want to go as a company? Yeah, it's really under a microscope now. There's so much attention. There's a lot of opportunity, but the quality of the projects is really getting looked at, which is great. So more to come on this, I'm sure. So for our last question, again, you've got sort of the global view and the local view based on uh, the work that you do. Thinking about the state of clean energy today, what's the biggest challenge and what's the biggest opportunity going forward? 
certainly the biggest challenge for us is the scope one is the thermal side of the emissions and that there's not a lot of great solutions. We certainly are following hydrogen very closely. Not only has its cost, but it has its property challenges is, is you know, you're going to introduce a significantly higher volume of exhaust gas into your process. And in our business, that's very challenging. That's probably not favorable. So we're looking at other options there. We have some technology that we think that might work that could provide a, a huge impact on our current cost structure and provide a better footprint for hydrogen. So we're following that actively. So the, you know, we'd love to see a better solution on how to make some of our products without natural gas. It's quite the challenge, particularly ones like ceramic tile. So I think that's the biggest challenge for us internally. Certainly, some of the opportunities are out there. There's a lot of efforts being made towards hydrogen. There's a lot of efforts being made towards renewable natural gas. So there's certainly some things that we think there's some solutions down the road. We're continuing to, I just had to look at a couple projects this weekend for direct air capture, for carbon capture. Certainly we're in the following technologies for carbon sequestration in case natural gas ends up being the best solution for us. So we certainly are looking at what are all the options that can help us get to where we think we want to go. Watch this space. We're going to be doing this again with another update on what you found. (laughs) Scott, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And then, as always, go SED. <laughs> Thank you. Here's Victoria Lopez-Whitley from Arcosa Inc. So, Victoria, first of all, welcome. And let's start with a brief description of Arcosa and your role with the company. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. Orcosa is a big company. We are multi-industry. Half of our business is really in the construction products line. We mine minerals like limestone and shale from the ground, process them, heat them, wash them, crush them into road-based application materials, materials that go into cement, different types of infrastructure builds. The other half of our business is really industrial manufacturing. So when you talk about big steel items, those are things that we build. We build wind towers, barges, utility poles, lots of different applications. If it's big and steel, we might make it at our company. Arcosa has been a publicly traded company for five years now. We spun off from our parent company five years ago. And so what we did at the outset of Arcosa is we really put ESG at the heart of who we are and what we wanted to be. And so honestly, from my perspective, I think our board and our senior team has really done a good job of making sure that we're ingraining ESG activities, sustainability into everything we do. So it's really, it's a top-down, driven top-down throughout the company. It is. So does the fact that ESG is so ingrained in the company from the top down, on one hand, it must make things easier because it's part of the culture. On the other hand, there's a lot of eyes on you. There are a lot of eyes. And I think it does make it easier from some perspectives, right? Having a voice that is heard is very important when you talk about affecting change in an organization. And so having the voice of the CEO behind you, I think is really important. Having the board asking questions in their committee meetings about sustainability is important. And it sends the right message all the way through your organization. And what's the community, when you say sends a message all the way through, are there communications and programs throughout the company? Yes, there are. So when we established the ESG team, so I have to tell this story because it makes me laugh every time. It was during COVID. 
it was April Fool's Day. And I got a call from the CEO and he said, we'd like you to come build this ESG program at our company. And I said, great. I love it. I came from finance and accounting and I was kind of up for a change, ready for something new. And so when I came into this role, I said, okay, we've got to establish some committees so that we can permeate ESG throughout the, the company. So we established a senior level executive committee that's really focused on ESG strategy. We can put together an ESG business related committee. So it's really the business leaders that are pushing that that message out to the company. And then we have an ESG champions committee. And that's really people within the organization who are leaders, but maybe not the top leader or the top manager. They're people who speak to change and are really excited about making those changes. And so that's really how we push our message out. We do have a lot of internal communications. We've got a great comms team that handles internal communications, and even some external from that standpoint, making sure that we are getting our message out in the right ways to the right people at the right time. So it's April Fool's, but not a joke. Not a joke. It was really the thing. I love that. (laughs) All right. So I want to ask, you know, we're at the Net Zero Forum. So quick word association. What do you think of when you hear Net Zero? So with Net Zero, I think of accountability. And that's really what you talk about when you when you talk about making a public commitment. It's very reputational. And if you are bold enough to make a net zero or any kind of clean energy commitment, you got to be able to back it up. And so that accountability, I think, is really important. And as a public company, you're accountable inside and outside. Yes, we've got a very large range of stakeholders. We've got investors who are telling us we need to care about these things. We've got employees who want to live in a world that is sustainable. And so we've listened to those people and we've integrated those concepts and those priorities into our plan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So digging into a little bit into some of those plans and what your issues are, scope one emissions is something you have a goal for. So, or do you have a goal or are you setting a goal at this point? So we, in 2022, we published our first sustainability goal. It was a 10% emissions intensity reduction goal by 2026. So we wanted to start small. Again, we're very early in our journey. We're a very young public company. But quite honestly, we almost attained it in our first year, that goal. <laughs> so we're, we're looking at what is the next step? What's the next evolution in goal setting for our company? What makes the most sense from a stakeholder perspective? And quite honestly, Arcosa is a, an acquisitive company. So there we're bringing in new businesses all the time. So what that does is it, it grows your volume. And so to have some of these big commitments, we don't want to have to caveat it too much. We don't want to exclude things from our commitment. And so we want to be real sure before we make our next commitment. So the company is moving, but the target isn't. That's what you're hoping. (laughs) Okay. So what kind of strategies are you looking at for scope one? So from a scope one perspective, we've looked at the low-hanging fruit. That's where we always start. And that's what makes the most business sense. For the people that I work with in the business units, if I'm not telling them how they can do something that saves them money and saves them energy, they're not really speaking the same language because these are companies that are well-established. They've been around for decades. And so I'm going in and talking to a plant manager and he says, you're going to tell me how to do my job? I've got to have a good solution that makes business sense and then connect the dots to how that is impacting us from an environmental perspective as well. And so we've really started with how can we improve our efficiencies at the plants? How do we have good shutdown procedures? How do we make sure that any upgrades we're doing to the facilities are smart when we talk about lighting and when we talk about shut off the automatic shutoff switches, right? Those are small things, but over time that builds 
the culture that we're trying to get to. We are looking at some bigger projects. We use a lot of thermal energy. And so we're looking at what are the right solutions for the facilities that we have. We have some things in the works and hopefully we'll be able to talk about them in our next sustainability report. That's great. I look forward to that. Um, so an interesting part of Arcosa, I call it a split personality. And you, uh, you brought that up at the beginning. Half the business is construction and mining. The other half is industrial mining. And the two sides have different needs when it comes to decarbonization. So how do you approach developing a company-wide plan? So that is the million-dollar question, Deborah. There are so many complexities that come with our business. The split identity, the geographical complexity, We've got plants from California all the way up to the Northeast and Pennsylvania. And so what we've done is we've tried to really focus. So we started out by looking at who are our top emitters at the company. Look, the first thing we really had to do was make sure we had the data, right? So a lot of the people that I've met with early on in my journey, they said, hey, we're still tracking all this in spreadsheets. I said, that's not sustainable. We can't keep that as a business process. And as we look to the future of regulation, that's becoming more and more apparent. So we installed a good system that is for data capture, and now we're operationalizing that data. So being able to provide each plant with, here's the specific thing that you need to work on. Instead of just saying, okay, you need to work on all your emissions. I can say, hey, you need to work on electricity consumption. You need to get your energy audit done. And these are the areas that you need to focus on. That's really been beneficial from a data perspective. I think that was really key. And then for these top emitters, we've got a handbook for the top 10 facilities that we got to work on. And we say, okay, here are the things we've looked at. Here are the things that won't work because it's a regional issue or because it may affect our production or whatever the issue may be. But here are the things that we could still try. And so that's really where we started. And we're continuing to turn over those rocks and find solutions at events like this that we can add to our roster of things to look at and pursue. And you mentioned some challenges so far that you're facing. What else can you tell us about in terms of challenges as you work through these plans? So we talked a little bit about it, but we're talking about well-established plants and locations. And when I say the word sustainability, they don't really understand what that means. They don't understand the importance. We're talking about rural facilities where this is not mainstream discussion. So from an education perspective, that's been a big challenge. Our ESG Champions Committee actually rolled out a training program for our employees. And so just continuing to talk about and use the right terminology has helped us to progress that. But again, I can't just go into a facility and say, hey, you need to change. I have to really think through how can I leverage what they're already doing and, you know, talk up some of these things that would be also beneficial. So, so a phrase I hear a lot that seems to fit here, you need to meet them where they live. Exactly. Right, so that to get them to get them excited about these concepts and uh, and these actions, and that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like you've had some wins already, some successes early on. What else has been uh, has been a win for you? So let's see the improved metrics, like the visibility around that, has been a really big win. And then our plant updates they continue to look at what are the smart ways to integrate energy efficiency. The biggest thing that I've seen is that people. They're not everywhere, but here and there, there are some people that are very excited to make these improvements. They really care about their communities and they know that their communities are the ones that are going to see the benefit. Their kids' kids are going to see the benefits of these changes that we're making, even if they're small changes. And so that's been some of the wins as well. We've done some really good project around optimizing PSI on some of our equipments where we saw some big gains just simply by changing within tolerance, that PSI, and, and we've seen some big efficiency gains in some of our manufacturing facilities there. 
and really shoring up some of our procedures has allowed us to gain some efficiencies as well. And it's things that you wouldn't necessarily normally think about, and they've made some efficiency gains there. That's great. And that sort of prepares the company as you're moving forward and expanding these plans. Look what we've done already, and let's take it to the next level. Well, this has been great. I have one last question for you and a sort of a big umbrella question. Thinking about the state of clean energy today, whether it's in your company or just what you see in the industry, what's the biggest challenge? And then what's the biggest opportunity? So I think the biggest challenge is very similar to the challenge that I see when we talk about regulation is there's so many options. When you talk to the C-suite, it can be confusing to them. So that's a big challenge. They don't know what a VPPA is. So you've got to learn to speak and meet them where they are. And so I think while that's a challenge, it's also an opportunity to educate our C-suite, to educate our leaders on here are the different clean energy options and here are the ways that we can get to a net zero plan or a roadmap. Okay. Well, Victoria Lopez-Whitley, thank you so much for your time today. This is so interesting. And there's a lot, I think there's a lot of news coming ahead as you work through these plans. So we look forward to hearing more. All right. Thank you, Deborah. And last but not least, let's hear from Charlie Marquez from Kirkhill Inc. Charlie, let's start with a brief description of Kirkhill and your role at the company. I'm the uh, senior manager of environmental health and safety, as well as facilities. And I manage primarily three groups, our environmental health and safety group, our facilities engineering group, as well as our facilities maintenance groups. Okay. And tell us what Kirkhill does. Kirkhill is an aerospace manufacturer. We're primarily a rubber manufacturing business, but we supply both commercial aircraft as well as defense and space. Okay, so let's start with a quick word association. What comes to mind when you hear the phrase net zero? So net zero, I guess that question, it depends on who you ask, right? It means a lot of things to a lot of people, but for me, it's the move towards carbon neutrality. To me, it just means being a responsible corporate citizen. And for us, net zero means moving towards energy efficiency and carbon reduction. So in terms of that journey moving towards those areas, where would you say Kirkville is at this point in time? We're well along the way. Our net zero goals are at a corporate level. I'm at a single business level. And so we're actually one of the pioneers. We're kind of leading the way, which means we get a lot of questions from other businesses within our corporate structure. So it's been fun. We've got a lot of latitude on what the corporation allows us to do. And so we're well along the way executing projects and moving towards our goals. Okay. So when you're getting asked those questions from other people, what's their biggest pain point? What are you able to guide them towards? I think the questions I typically get is, you know, all of our business leaders gather together to share best practices as well as go over, you know, how each business is doing. And I think when the other business leaders recognize what Kirkhill is doing and what we've been able to accomplish, there's a certain amount of professional envy that comes upon them. And so they'll reach out to our president and our president will pass them down to me. And so they can ask uh, specific questions. I think the most recent one I've worked with is one of our sister companies just kind of looking at their solar proposal and to make sure it kind of matches what we've been doing at, at Kirkhill. So it depends, I guess. I have to say, I've said this before, but one of the hallmarks of this industry is the way that people are willing to share their information. Sure. And their journeys, for lack of a better word, uh, there's a lot of cooperation, which is great to see. So as I mentioned, you've been a speaker. You're at our March 23 Net Zero Forum. And part of your presentation was about how sustainability projects get pushed. It becomes, oh, maybe next year, it's not quite our priority. 
because they're competing with other projects and other priorities that might have a seem to have a better ROI. So have you cracked the code on how to push those projects through or is it still a challenge for you? Yeah, I think for us specifically, our corporation has several California businesses. And so with the escalating cost of energy in California and the also the escalating incentives that are available out there, energy projects are quickly becoming similar in ROI to other productivity projects. And so I don't know that I've cracked the code. I certainly can't take a bow for that. But what I can say is that it has become easier just from the environment around us. Okay. So I want to dig in a little bit on some of the challenges. And one of them is that I hear a lot working with utilities. And I know you've mentioned interconnection requirements and escalating bills. So what's your strategy in dealing with utilities? I wish I had an effective one. I guess for us, the biggest challenge around utilities is the uh, professed desire to help and just the lack of it actually happening. So I would just encourage anyone who is heading out on a, an energy project to start early on the interconnection process. You don't know what hurdles might be thrown out in front of you. And I think for us, I guess it varies around the country, but our utility is a giant organization. And as giant organizations go, it's uh, slow and steady for them. And so it's been a challenge to get them to execute on an expedient, to see any kind of expediency. So that's been a challenge. We've had project managers change midstream and just things that cause slowdown. So certainly continues to be the number one challenge for us. Okay. So, all right, that's number one. What's the number two challenge? I think the number two challenge would be just the lack of expertise out in the field. It seems like I have to be a little bit of Columbo, you know, go to discover what's actually going on out there. And so I've actually had a, I say that as a problem, but I've engaged the DOE, I've engaged SoCal Gas and found that each one of these groups has an expert, if you ask enough questions, that's willing to share, but you, it's not readily available out there. So finding solid answers before you go to your corporation and say, hey, I need you to spend X amount of dollars and this is what it's going to do for us, actually being sure of what's going on out there and, and making sure that you're getting good, solid information from um, industry experts. Right, now I'm picturing you with the Colombo rain, you know, the raincoat. We should be on video. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about challenges. Let's talk about success because you said, you know, you're somewhat far down the road. So what does progress look like? I think for us, we started slow. We started with some smaller projects. The first energy project that we had out there was the installation of a small energy storage battery, a Tesla battery that just kind of helped us manage our peak load and our overall demand on the grid. And then from there, we moved into maybe the one that everyone else does is the LED lighting. But we're, uh, we've got about 400,000 square feet under roof and we're on a 20 acre facility. So when you count up all of the indoor and outdoor lights, it's a pretty significant reduction, both in cost and in overall tasking of the grid. Okay. So, and as you're moving ahead, what's the next hurdle for you? What's the next, the win that you're looking for? Yeah, right now we've installed the micro turbines. That's where the utility comes in place. Everything is functionally tested. We know it works 100%. We're waiting for the final thumbs up from the utility. That continues to be a challenge. We're expecting that in the coming months. And then behind that, right behind that is the PV installation. So we're doing carport solar. So we're building one piece at a time, our own on-site microgrid. So that's exciting. 
And seeing all of that work together and having the flexibility to go between microgrid or solar, or even drawing from the grid when it makes sense to do so, is going to be a huge advantage for us. Okay, that's great. Well, we wish you luck going forward. And I want, since you, you, are, you have a lot of, of experience in the industry, I want to ask you sort of a general question. So thinking about the state of clean energy today, what do you see as the biggest opportunity moving forward? And what are the resources or what is needed to get there? Yeah, I think being here, I'm recognizing, actually, this is my third event. And it seems like with each event, we're getting more commercial and industrial folks to join us. I think in the beginning, there was a lot of institutional, whether it was education or I see, you know, hospitals, not necessarily here, but I see them embracing those types of things, but seeing more manufacturing companies and things. And so I think as manufacturing and in industry recognizes the opportunities that are out there, whether it's CHP or solar, and recognizes that these are viable business opportunities for them to both improve their business and lower their carbon footprint. I think uh, we'll see those coming along quickly. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time today. This was, uh, I'm glad we had a chance to catch up and we'll keep tabs on you and on Kirkill and see what comes next. Many thanks to Scott Bargestock, Victoria Lopez-Whitley, and Charlie Marquez. We look forward to watching your journeys. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into the podcast and being part of Smart Energy Decisions. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, like the Net Zero Forum, click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're really honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, as well as on our website and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.